Impresarios in sports come in all variety, you might say. There are those hotshot promoters out to make the sudden big buck. But in many cases, you might say owners of an enterprise, a sports enterprise, let's say baseball, which is, of course, my favorite of all American sports. Baseball, often we think of the owner as a, as a tycoon, as someone who has inherited money or has made dough and generally has a conglomerate of financial holdings. And the team to him is hobby perhaps, or he's interested in ego massage, or perhaps even a tax write-off. But every once in a while there's someone different. There's someone who's the maverick, to whom the game is a way of life, who sees it as connected with delight as far as of the fans are concerned, who himself is one, and who is looked upon askance by the traditional big shots. And of course the one I'm thinking of is Bill Vick. Bill Vick, whose life is the game and who has given us all a great deal of delight and excitement and, of course, humor. And I guess one of the reasons why he's looked upon suspiciously by those who follow the set path, the unimaginative one. And so Bill Vick is my guest. I'm wanting to have Bill as my guest for a long time, and this will be an hour of reflections by Bill Vick on baseball, and for that matter, the American way of life. In a moment, incidentally, Bill is a highly literate guy, too which is also one of the rare cases of owners of baseball clubs. So we come to Bill Veck in a moment on his thoughts after this message. And that's one interpretation of how baseball began, Bill. You know, I always knew it was important, but I really didn't know that the Lord started uh, <laughs> creation with it. <laughs> we always thought that it was Cooperstown or D Abner Doubleday. Now we know it goes back to Genesis. Yeah, way ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the creationists would like that. You know, Bill, I'm thinking about you now reflecting, you in life, and I remember, oh, you were the owner of the St. Louis Browns baseball club. What were your own thoughts right now? about the game of baseball, the sport, American people. And, you, you know, uh, Studs, I think it is becoming increasingly important. Strange, uh, after all these many years of operating, it is because it is a, one of the very few, if not the only island of stability in a completely unstable world. It's probably the least changed thing. I'm speaking now of the game is played on the field, not uh, what happens in the counting house or so on. If you stop to think about it, you can hardly find something that is less changed than, than baseball. And during the 60s and the early uh, part of the, of the 70s, uh, there, our country was uh, in a state of turmoil the, the mood of the country is typified, I guess, by colleges, uh, campuses particularly, which influenced, of course, the sub-peers, and then as they graduated, went forth. It was, it was one of sullen. Uh, it was, what, declassé, to smile or laugh, to enjoy, and the sports that, uh, well, the watchwords were speed and action and violence. And the watchwords, I think, the sports that, I mean, matched those watchwords were football and basketball and hockey and mugging. And uh, baseball was not uh, thought of very highly. And then with the end of the war in Vietnam, it was almost as if you had turned a water faucet and, and baseball was rediscovered by a whole different group of people. Now it was, it was no longer 
uh, a social sin to to be exuberant and to enjoy. And all of a sudden, uh, people started going once again and, and discovering this this game that you, you, you savor, not gulp. Uh, this game that is a cerebral game and, and one in which uh, you are participant uh, as well as spectator. In basketball, for instance, uh, you 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 can't compare. You can't give uh, vent to our natural gregariousness because you'll miss seven plays. But that's quite part of the charm of, of baseball is that you can talk to people around you and you can guess what the manager's going to do. And then you can second guess him if it goes badly and say, you see what I said, if it works. It's... it's uh, it is a, an exercise in your own participation. And then it has this long tradition. Uh, tradition is not uh, is a good word if, 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 if it doesn't become a, a, an albatross around the neck of progress. But there's much to be said for, for a good tradition. And, and your daddy or mother or friend or somebody took you to the ball game and you in turn take someone and then they take their children and so on. So it's a continuity. It doesn't exist in, in, in many other sports you and places. You the word continuity. Someone, Lawrence Ritter, whom you know, wrote that book, Glory of Our Times, yeah. spoke of baseball to reflecting a past as well as present. We think of the fields as though once we were a rural society primarily. And the open field, the sunshine, and the open field, you know, that's country boys taking. That's part. why I I decry the the use where it isn't absolutely imperative of artificial turf. Ballparks should smell like freshly cut grass. Uh, it, it's 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 a form of escape, but escape is a very good word. We all need it. Uh, you know, you you have to get away once in a while from the the. The decisions and the troubles that beset all of us in this complex, overly complex uh, world. So, you take in baseball, unlike any other sport, I think, it is, it, uh, you can compare successfully for 40, 50 years, and with some degree of meaning. A 300 hitter was a fine hitter in 1925. He's a fine hitter today. And the mark of excellence in a pitcher is still a 20-game winner, as it was four decades ago. And there isn't any other yeah. place, really, that, that you can make that comparable And also comparison. something isn't there with the fans watching. Many you know, people have that trouble, so you say it's a getting away. But also, you say, I remember when I saw you last, and, and you're one of the heroes of the book American Dreams, Lost and Found, you were nursing a beer at the table of the barge room that was behind the stands of a Comiskey Park. And everybody comes into your table, and then you're saying, for the most part, we're losers. And there's a certain moment when you want to have small triumphs, and you delight. Even though the team may not win at times, the idea of getting a kick out of something. The delight. Delight is the word that more or less. It is, it is, it is a game. Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that it's a game. It gets, uh, and and when that aspect of it is de-emphasized, or is overshadowed by the by the emphasis on money and dollars, and contracts and and arbitration and conniving, 
when that game part is lost, then we lose a great deal of the enjoyment, of the sheer pleasure. So we've always tried to create an atmosphere. You can't guarantee that a club is going to win on any given day. With the Browns, we could almost guarantee quite the opposite. Uh, we scored three runs. It was novelty night. But what you can guarantee is that you can create an atmosphere that is fun and that uh, something will happen that is uh, is memorable and, and, and enjoyable. You know, I'm thinking uh, you have been criticized by some of your colleagues, the owners of other teams, for your innovations. One was the exploding scoreboard when someone on the Sox or the home hits a home run, the scoreboard explodes. But that's not accidental. You got the idea from something you read. <laughs> yes, I, it's like most ideas. You steal them, and then you adapt them. And that was from Sarayan's time of your life play in which you know so well. Uh, it takes place in a bar, and I feel very comfortable in bars. I spent a great part of my life in them. Fortunately, those people who haven't spent any time in bars are great losers. And uh, in this saloon, there's a fellow that is playing a pinball game at the very back of it. Yeah. And he walks up, if you remember, to get nickels from the bartender and back again. Never says a word. Nothing happens. And then just before the final curtain, he hits a winner. And everything happens. This is, uh, the band plays Dixie and flags come up and lights go on popping. It was wonderful. So I thought, gee, that's great. All of this build up and then all of a sudden excitement. And that's what the scoreboard was meant to do. And uh, it's funny, they, they wanted to declare the scoreboard illegal. They said it gave an advantage to the home team. Uh, and probably it did because it did embarrass some pitchers, and was meant to. Uh, and 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 yeah, they said, you know, that's a terrible advantage. Now there are thirteen or fourteen of them. But the thing is, what got me from what you told me that time is that here's Willie, the guy who's playing that pinball machine. He's losing and losing, and yeah. one of the anonymous millions suddenly hits, and you say, even the loser, right. that moment of glory. And so you try to provide that little moment of glory. That's, you know, it's an interesting thing. Even with the ball players, uh, as long as that's been around, they get a tremendous kick, particularly those that don't hit very many, of setting that board off. It, it, it really is, I think it is more important to them than, than, than the home run itself. You see, this is the it's, it's, it's interesting because, particularly to a pitcher, well, not pitchers anymore because they don't hit anymore. Um, but utility men who don't get to play and don't hit many home runs. I, I remember the first time that uh, that Essien hit one. He did everything but dance to the sound of the board. But that uh, it's that moment of glory which you provide. I remember uh, when you took over the St. Louis Browns to point out many of the listeners are not baseball fans. The Browns was the was the clown team of baseball, they won nothing. And you brought in Eddie Goodell, and I have a story that goes along with the little mention, Eddie about three foot, now Eddie was under four feet. And you brought, isn't he? Yeah. And you brought Eddie into bat, and that, you made Eddie Goodell, whose life would have been just forgotten, you made him immortal. <laughs> well, he's in every record book, 
he was uh, he was an invalid. You knew him uh, before he no after he it was after well, yeah. Uh, he, he was he was uh, a, a consummate ham, and he milked his moment of glory to the nth degree, and everybody applauded him doing it. You know, for once he wasn't a little man. He was 12 feet tall, and uh, he was a nice little fellow. But the thing I remember, I had met him, and this is a postscript. Uh, this involves Bill Veck, my guest. In 1954, I ran into Eddie Goodell. He was a midget, three feet seven, who worked as a messenger for this radio station where I'd worked. In 1951, Bill Veck had hired him as a ball player, as a member of the St. Louis Browns, for one turn at bat. He got on base, Vector recalls. He had a foot and a half strike zone. If I had any courage... No, inch and a half strike zone. Uh, uh, inch and a half strike zone. I made a mistake here. It's a typographical or mimer. Inch and a half strike zone. And Vex says, if I had any courage, I might have signed eight midgets and we might have won the game. and We might have won a game in 51. But here's the part. Goodell, wistful, rueful, this is years later, remembered... I bat a thousand that year. One time at bat, I get on base. I'm disappointed, Mr. Vex. I thought it'd use me again, but, and Goodell smiled beatifically, I'll never forget that day as long as I live. The fans went wild. I still think I can do it. It was his one moment of glory. And that's what you try to do, provide little moments of, of delight. Well, you know, we all have so many things that, appear adverse appear, uh, and particularly when you've had bad ball clubs like I've had so often uh, and and so you you savor the the smallest in the victories and you can find that uh, there are so many uh, things that maybe don't look like victories but that are yeah now I remember uh, you were talking to, perhaps we should go back to beginnings, you, because it's not accidental. You and the way you feel about this game and uh, the society we live in, too, you. Beginnings, because your father was a journalist and became the general manager of the Cubs. We're talking about the early 30s, late 20s? Oh, yeah, I see. Actually, in, in, in he went to work for the Cubs in 1914. And he was there from 14 to, to his death in 33. And it's, uh, he was the nicest man I ever met. It has, I guess, gone out of style to think that your father was the uh, superlative in all respects, but to, to me he was. It's kind of interesting that that's why I don't use any profanity. Uh, since I've Ten years old, I've never used the word, not because it bothers me in the slightest, or, but because we were at Catalina, and there was a song, remember, it ain't gonna rain no more, no more. Do you remember that? Wendell Hall, redhead yes. music maker. And and they had uh, always a series of, uh, of uh, scat uh, uh, rhymes. And like all small ten-year-olds, I guess I mm. always memorized the ones that uh, I shouldn't have. So, in any event, I used this, and my daddy said to me, he said, you know, it's, I'm disappointed. And I said, well, well, 
what do you mean? Why disappointed? He said, well, I thought he would be maybe annoyed, but not disappointed. He said, I'm disappointed because you're using someone else's old, tired words. He said, there must be, that shows that you can't think for yourself, can't speak for yourself instead of losing all of these things that have lost meaning. And the idea of, of disappointing them, you know, or embarrassing was, was just terrible to me. That's why I have never used another but word of profanity. But your father's ambition, I, I, I think yours too, it was to edit, to run a small town newspaper. Oh, yes. yes. That's the way I was being educated, or hopefully being educated, but at least going to school. We had even gone to, uh, to look at some... One in Dixon, Illinois, and and uh, then of course the depression came along, and uh, you didn't buy things in the depression, and then of course he died so early, uh, and and I had to leave school to to go to work, and I had worked summers in in the ballpark, and Mr. Philip Wrigley uh, was the only one I knew would give me a job, and did, and uh, so. Uh, the die was cast, and, uh, and and I've spent the rest of my life in the, in the baseball business. Baseball. When you were a little kid, did, did you know Ring Lardner? Oh yes, you did. Uh, you see, the Lardners lived on the second floor, on the south side of Chicago. My daddy and mother lived in the first floor, and so I grew up uh, when they moved to to uh, Riverside. We, we moved out to the suburbs and. I went to school with the Lardner boys, with uh, uh, David and uh, and Ring Jr. and uh, John. John. Well, John was the, the but there's another one. I've skipped, Lex. And yeah, another there one. There were four the, of them. The, I, yeah. I, I can't think which. John was the Jimmy Lardner. Was Jimmy was killed in Spain. Yes. Yeah. No, David was killed in Spain. The other one was killed in a plane crash, and then. And then, of course, John worked himself to death. So, you know, he was supporting, while Ring was in the pokey, uh, he was helping support his mother, his own family, David's family, and, and uh, Ring I'm thinking that you yourself span several epochs in baseball, but the changes itself. We, do, we think of a, a bucolic sort of game, easy, and, and then you've been for different stages when it became the hot shot enterprise for the fast buck guys who who enter it taking over teams well, without the slightest knowledge of it too. Uh, of course the uh, the cost of ball clubs almost preclude now uh, the the career operator uh, the only one left now that I'm unemployed I guess is Calvin Griffith and we were for some time two dinosaurs in a world in which there were no trees left for us to eat from. Now he's alone. Uh, the, it has become now a question of tax dollars, corporate structure that can take advantage of depreciation. Uh, something that the, the reason for the sale of the White Sox is because the, the structure that uh, we envisioned before the Messerschmitt decision be, turned out uh, three weeks after we bought it to be abysmally stupid. Uh, and and now, of course, you have uh, uh, a tax shelter in ball clubs. 
you have an ego trip. And uh, for instance, Steinbrenner, uh, who was uh, interested more, I think, in in uh, in his own. Uh, this is the individual aggrandizement, yes, rather than not necessarily dollars. But yeah. uh, however, the one thing that doesn't change is the game itself. It's quite remarkable when you consider how much bigger and faster and stronger and above all smarter athletes are today. Uh, that uh, that the geometric pattern has remained in balance. That the the speed of the battered ball versus the speed of the runner to first base and to other bases has, has maintained as the, as the human animal got stronger and faster, so too to become more agile and, and more skillful throwing so that, that the time element remains constant and you don't have uh, 90 to 1 games, you know, or 90 to 80 and so on. And it, it's remained uh, very, very... Uh, for every offensive benefit, there has been a defensive benefit. Yeah. Do you know what else? You said something earlier about continuity, about a past and a present. And we remember, I as a kid, of course, uh, remember now a certain play that was made, you know, uh, with a triple play of Wambi in the World Series of 1920, Tripping. Dodgers versus the Indians, you know. Or in later days, Bully May's great catch of Wurtz's long ball in the World Series against Detroit. Oh, was it Detroit? But in the World Series against Cleveland. 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 That's right. Was that your team then? No. no. Uh, we had sold it. Uh, that was the 54 team. Hank Greenberg, one of my all-time, all-time favorite people, was running that club. And it, 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 it's a very interesting story, at least to me, and it illustrates uh, how quickly you can go from from uh, riches to rags, from renown to disrepute. Uh, Henry was having a, a, a dinner uh, after the Sunday ball game, which was the fourth game, and, it, uh, and he had about, oh, I should say about 600 people who were clamoring for, for invitations. It was at the Hollandon Hotel, and... And uh, you know it, it was difficult for him to not not uh, stretch the walls too much. And then the Indians lost the fourth ball game, and the series was over. And so we went to the Hollandon Hotel, Henry and Carol and uh, the Gimble family, two other people and myself and acres and acres of shrimp cocktails and just and the band playing and a waiter standing around a dozen people you know the indians had blown four straight mm. <laughs> at so the, the sun, end of the world and so the uh, sun, fair weather friends oh yes never showed up oh yes but thinking about it's the only game which is a past and present i mean fused you remember that play it's a moment of grace yes. that is remembered and you remember so many things, though. Uh, Hack Wilson and the strange uh, physical appearance, uh, five foot uh, uh, four, 230 pounds, you know. <laughs> he, uh, 
a tremendous power and covered with dirt from head to foot. He, he kept extra dust so that he could get it on him. And he had, he's the only yeah. fellow I know. You know, I'm wondering whether this is imagination, that whether it was, maybe because we were younger, I was younger, that it seemed more colorful then than now. Perhaps I'm wrong. But then you mentioned Hack Wilson. There's a story Nelson Algren tells, a very funny story. Joe McCarthy was managing the Cubs. And Boom Boom Beck was pitching for the Cubs. And I forget the opponent. No, he's pitching for Philadelphia. For Philadelphia. Well, and who was pitching? Someone was pitching for the Cubs at the time. Didn't Beck join the Cubs later no, on? No, there was another no. Beck, Clyde. Yeah, another. Shortstop. Clyde, no, then there was another pitcher then. He was being clobbered by the visiting team. Had a lot of them being, In the meantime, the ball is Hack Wilson, who I guess must have had a hard night before. Hack Wilson is busy chasing the ball from off the right field wall and throwing it in a line home, all the doubles and triples. And he's so tired. And now McCarthy's going to the mound to take out the pitcher. And Hack is on his haunches, letting the sweat roll down because he had quite a bit of beer and a few others the night before, I guess. He's, letting, he's not watching the plate. He's just so tired from chasing the ball. And McCarthy says, give me the ball to the pitcher. The pitcher gets mad, doesn't want to leave. He throws the ball to right field. Hack looks up, sees the ball coming at him, and with one motion, makes a perfect throw to the plate. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff of that. Let's take a slight pause. I want to ask you about something you did as the owner of the Cleveland Indians, a certain memorable moment in baseball. We'll come to that. Bill Veck is my guest, and just recalling. I'm thinking of Bill Veck, the independent the independent operator in a game that seems less and less independently run. We'll resume in a moment after this message. And so resuming with Bill Veck and a reflection, you, what was the year? Uh, Jackie Robinson had just come into major league, into organized baseball. Ricky brought him in with the Dodgers from Montreal. And you did something in Cleveland with you introduced Larry Doby. It was in, it was in '47. Uh, Larry had been playing for Ephraim Manley in Newark, and uh, we had been looking f- for young black players for from from 1946 on. And in '47, we, we purchased his contract from Ephraim Manley, and he joined the ball club here in in Chicago, Comiskey Park. And uh, it seems difficult to to uh, to understand, but uh, it was a very daring thing to do in those days to bring a, a black player. There had been no baseball rules against it, but there had been an unwritten agreement, it seemed like, that no one would. And so uh, Larry, as I say, joined the club here, and and uh, Louis Boudreau was the, was the manager. So he put Toby in the game. Larry, the first time at bat, we had a remarkable fellow playing second base by the name of Joe Gordon. We one got of the, from the Yankees. One, yes, yeah. and uh, one of the fine ball players. Well, Dobie went to f- plate first time at bat, first black player in American League, and he was, I think, the palest guy on the field. Uh, he he was, he, in, you know, intimidated. 
a great number of people, more than he had ever seen at one time, not only the normal difficulties of a, of a rookie, but really felt that he was carrying the, 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 the weight of a, of, a, of a whole race of people. So he walked the plate and he swung at four pitches and he didn't wasn't within six inches of any one of them. And he made that long trip back down the dugout and was sat way at the far end, alone, 15 feet from the next ball player. Gordon was the next hitter. Had been a left-hand pitcher. Gordon ate up softball left-hand pitches, and uh, I think it was Smith, uh, who was a, you know, a cunny thumber. And Gordon struck out on three pitches. He must have missed each pitch by a foot. And he made the same trip down the length of the dugout and sat next to Dopey, who was head in the hands as Larry had. Tacitly saying, look, it's just a ball player. Everybody can strike out. You think Gordon deliberately did that? Oh, yeah. Well, he I, was deliberate. I, I, I have never seen yeah. him miss three yeah. pitches by, by a foot before, and not the guy that couldn't throw as hard as I could. An interesting thing, Larry also thought it was because the rest of the time that they played together, Larry always made a point. In those days, you left your glove in the field. And he always made a point of getting to, the, to Gordon's glove first and picking it up and tossing it to him. Interesting. One of the most thoughtful uh, acts I've ever seen in a baseball diamond. I'm thinking of Gordon's gesture because I imagine there was antagonism from other players. Oh, yes. How about he, he was our the leader of the team, and that one act uh, gave greater acceptance to Larry than any speech that I could have made or anybody else could have made. What was the reaction of the other owners when you did that, when you, when you brought in Dobie? Well, they, were, they weren't very happy about it. Uh, they, they, there wasn't anything, of course, they could say. Some years previously, uh, 1940, the end of 1941 season, in the uh, no, 42 season, 42. the war was on. I had the Milwaukee club. And the Philadelphia Phillies had fallen into evil ways. And if they were in the process of going busted. And so I went to Philadelphia and worked out a deal with a fellow named Jerry Nugent, who owned the Philadelphia club at that time to buy the Philadelphia Ball Club from And I came back to Chicago to make sure that I had enough money, of somebody else's, of course, uh, partners, mm. not mine, and, and what I could get for the Milwaukee Club to, to make this purchase. And on my way back to Philadelphia, I stopped in Judge Landis's office at 333 building down here. And I thought I would Again, tell him... for the audience, he was the commissioner of baseball, baseball first yes. at the time. Uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Uh, I should have known from the location of the mountain that I was making somewhat of a mistake, but I didn't want him to be caught unawares. And I had Abe Saperstein, and, and I had been contacting or scouting black players. This is in 42. 
because they represented the only reservoir of, of remarkably good talent that hadn't been tapped by the war. So I stopped in at the uh, Lannis's office and I to tell him what I was going to do in the morning and I was going to bring in this uh, half a dozen, ten black players. And we didn't want the pennant going away because uh, uh, Page and, and, and Josh Gibbs, so on. I mean, you, hired, event, you brought uh, Satch Page, too, into Ultimately, yes. So I went, what's gotten the Broadway Limited? And by the time I got to Philadelphia the next morning, and went to see Mr. Nugent to complete, you know, the transaction. Suddenly, Nugent no longer owned the ball club. The National League owned the club. That was to keep you from getting it. <laughs> well, I think it was to keep from the inevitable inroads of black players. Yeah. And that would land us and, then, and played then, a role here. Well, then the American League uh, had the franchise, and then they sold it to a fellow in McCox. Bill Cox, and Landis subsequently chased for betting on ball games. This is interesting. So it was considerable length of time before Mr. Rickey and Abe. You see, Abe Saperstein uh, started out as the as the scheduler for the the uh, Negro leagues, Negro National League, and so on. And uh, he he did their schedules. And then, then he had, had from time to time, uh, promoted ball games, uh, and and a lot of his basketball players uh, were were also baseball players. As a matter of fact, you remember Goose Tatum, mm -hmm. who still was the funny, uh, cleverest of the comics, of the Trotters, at least to me. Well, Abe signed him originally as a baseball player. He was a first baseman. And they were training down in in, uh, in in Louisiana, and the the diamond was quite a distance away uh, from the uh, from where they changed, and in between there was a basketball court. And so Goose was over playing basketball with some kids, and Abe came along, and watched them. And he said, you know, Goosey, where'd you play basketball? And Goose says, I didn't go to school. I didn't play anywhere, you know. And he said, well, do you always play like this? And, and Goose said, yeah, is there another way? And he says, no. No, he said, don't. But don't play any more baseball. I don't want you hurt. Mm. This is how we... You know, he might have been a good first baseman. Yeah. You know, he, he couldn't hit. He was a remarkable fielder. He, we used to put on demonstrations mm. when Abe and I had to have a mm. team. Uh, and the, uh, he, you could let anybody stand 20 feet from him, throw as hard as he wanted. And uh, throw it, you know, within well, 10 Bill, feet, he catch the ball. I'm thinking about you, Bill Vecht. You were always, seems to me, encountering a certain kind of opposition from the vested powers who ran these things, because you were always trying to do something. You felt closer to, to what it was all about, whether it be the humor of the exploding scoreboard or whether it be bringing in black players. But invariably, you were the independent, you were the maverick at all times. So well, they always had this feeling about you, didn't they? The don't you think, Studs, that, that all people really basically resent change? Uh, 
I shouldn't say all, but the majority of people, if they resent anybody who, who causes them to have to do things in a different way, to, to start having new thoughts. And so uh, such ridiculous little things that were resented because, just because they were different. We put the names on the back of the uniforms. Yeah. Uh, that also caused thing. the furor. I, I felt that yeah. people inside the yeah. park should have the same opportunity for identification that they had on television where they put names on the slides. Well, this created a tremendous furor, and interestingly enough, the names on the back of uniforms are league rules in football, basketball, and hockey. And the only place where they're not adopted universally in professional sports is in baseball. Uh, why? Well, because they, they, they resented my causing them to do it, forcing them. Uh, but I, I can't, uh, I, I can never get very annoyed with that because I understand. I'm the, thinking that it's, change. You, it's this change that you bring that, that, that would seem natural for what we call the American pastime. I think, Bill, does the, this is a leading question, the independent, the ind such as yourself, it's tougher now than it would have been. It was, always was tough, of course. We know it way back. Uh, beer barons and tycoons. It's almost ball impossible clubs. now. But now it's, it's almost uh, impossible. Almost impossible. Uh, as I say, Calvin is the last. Yeah, Calvin uh, Griffin, uh, who inherited what? from his father. Yeah. Yes, yeah. my uncle. And, uncle. Um, and he has, of course, uh, 12, 15 members of his family working in some capacity or another with the ball club. So that is a much better economic return than he could get if he sold the club. But otherwise, it's... it's uh, He's done a remarkable job of, of staying alive yeah. with it. It's, it's... You see, a career operator is, is playing with, with uh, 50 cent dollars. <laughs> uh, that's not quite true. I, I reversed it. I'm sorry. He's playing with full dollars against others' fifty cent dollars because the government is paying. You see, as the as the depreciation flows through against personal income, then the government pays for half of it. Whereas the way we were were, were structured, when we spent a dollar, it was a real one. And there were no tax implications that we could take advantage of. So in the hands of big-time bookkeepers, pretty much, is what I'm <laughs> We're talking about everything, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, baseball yeah. reflecting a, a world which we live. So I think of Bill Veck himself now, your thoughts reflectively. I'm, you know, the suggestion I made to you, you say from reading, I know you read a great deal, from William Saroyan's time of your life, you got the idea of the exploding scoreboard, this guy at the pinball machine. Has it ever occurred to you that you could, be the ro you could play the role of Joe? Joe is the central figure of time of your life at the tavern. <laughs> Joe doesn't have to move. He sits in a chair, he philosophizes and drinks beer, and the cast around him rotates. And uh, that would be a marvelous new career for Bill Veck, I think. I tried it. Uh, as you know, I tried the legitimate stage once. I played Mr. Whiteside's part in The Man Who Came to Dinner, which happens to be, I think, the longest speaking part in, in American theater. And I did it with the original cast, uh, uh, 
replacing Matty Woolley. You, you replaced so Matty. There's one big difference. See, he, that was a takeoff on Alexander Wolcott, yes. the acerbic critic and right. acidulous guy and with this with this harsh, witty tongue. And all. Whereas the role of Joe in Time of Your Life is more Bill Vec, the well, philosophical guy. Well, I sit in saloons guy. and drink and, yeah. and, and an amateur philosopher, yes. <laughs> but, Wouldn't that be something? But after that thing turned out to be yeah. such a... The, the man who came to dinner turned out to be, he came for a very light lunch. Mm. It was a disaster. Uh, although I must admit, I, I, I enjoyed it. You enjoyed doing yeah, it. Yeah, it was fun. And um, the other members of the cast were very kind, as I have a feeling they always are, uh, saving my life mm. repeatedly. And uh, Yeah, but this could be, this one I think could be, it's just the role made for you. I think if if this if Sir Ryan were asked about this and he knew of you being available now to do it, well, I think he'd, he'd jump at the idea. I'd like that. Bill, what are you, any reflections now about baseball, yourself, thoughts at this moment? Well, uh, now that I, it took me a considerable length of time to become unemployed, much harder than in past, uh, and now, now I, I think I can look at the thing with uh, less jaundiced eyes than I could while I was involved directly. And I, and I hope that that uh, that the operators will recognize that the real importance of baseball as the game is played on the field. And that, and that they will not let the the dollars involved take over. In other words, for every story that you read about a ball player now, you're going to read two or three about how much money he's asking, how long a contract, what his agent said, and what he said, and why he should renegotiate his contract. It's the game that is important. And it's the game that's endured all these things that we as operators have tried to do to it over the years. So it must be to withstand our stupidity be the greatest game there is. You know, just, and I just hope that they will not put all the emphasis on on the fact that a 276 hitter got uh, $23 million over 10 years, you know, which is sheer lunacy. Uh, and say that a kid coming out of of uh, Tucson, a boy named Kent, can hit a ball further than anybody in the White Sox. You know, in 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 several decades, and then a year from now, he'll be the one to talk about, not yeah. how much money some guy is going to get or not get. And I'm thinking also of something else of. Uh, it, well, you've been talking about this a good deal. I know you did. You know, the idea of winning is all, and if one loses, uh, the place must be like a morgue. And here's something you said to me. There's in all of us a competitive spirit, but winning has become life and death. We lose sight that it's only a game. It's a delightful game that is occasionally played by skillful men. Phil Wrigley once said, all you need is a winning club. It's a damning comment. We all like winners, but winning without joy, and now we come to it, winning without joy isn't worth the candle. I hate to lose, but it's not the end of the world. Tomorrow may be better. 
I'm the guy at that pinball machine, waiting for all those rockets to explode. Well, you know, joy, Studs, is a is a word that has fallen from almost from our lexicon, except when they put up the Christmas tree decorations on the Fourth of July and and start playing carols, you hear joy to the earth. And the day after Christmas, boom, end of that. No more joy until next time they try to sell something. And every day should be joyous because there is uh, uh, something wonderful happening somewhere. And as a matter of fact, if you... uh, if you're put together like orthopedists, uh, as, as I am, or an example of the skill of the medical society, I, I can't see and I can't hear and I can't walk. It's just the fact that you were around every morning is a joy. <laughs> and what's one to be savored? Yeah, I said again by simply saying, Bilvec triumphant. <laughs> Surviving. <laughs> surviving. Well, surviving. Bilvec surviving is being Bilvec triumphant. And I want to thank you very much for the delight you've brought to baseball fans, those who don't even know the game, by being that challenger, that maverick, that uh, person. Bilvec, thank you very much. Thank you, Studs.